I had the pleasure of uh, hearing another psychiatrist joke told to me by one of the members of AA who necessarily will remain anonymous, but in my psychiatric stupidity I didn't understand it, but maybe somebody else will. The neighbor of a psychiatrist noticed the gentleman walking down the street past his house carrying his pants in his hand. And this seemed a rather strange phenomena, and the neighbor asked the psychiatrist why he was carrying his pants in his hand down the street. And he said, well, yesterday I went without my shirt and I got a stiff neck, so today I thought I'd try this. I don't quite understand that, but I guess it's all right. <laughs> Thank you, dear anonymous contributor to my repertoire of <laughs> psychiatrist jokes. <clears throat> this morning, uh, we have the last speaker on the morning program, whom I've been most happy to meet personally, never having uh, been to Hazleton, although we've heard about Hazleton for many years. I remember when our dear district attorney, who was a well-known uh, and publicized alcoholic in the city of Denver, they finally sent him to Hazleton, and uh, he recovered there, came back to Denver, and we had many talks with him about his experiences at the famous institute. Uh, Bert died uh, a few months later of sober, thank God, of a coronary, but he did die sober. So he was certainly a great uh, uh, booster for the Hazleton Institute. But uh, Dr. Daniel J. Anderson, who is the uh, director of Hazleton, is going to talk to us about uh, the revolution of psychotherapy. Um, this should be a, a very interesting subject. So, Dan, will you tell them what the... Incidentally, he's the only uh, uh, non-alcoholic who got introduced as a new member of this group, so it sounds like you're a non-honorary member, Dan. Thank you very much, Dr. Della. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm happy to be here, and I'm glad that the group feels kind of humorous and that Ed starts out telling jokes about psychiatrists because I'm afraid I'm going to have to do that too. But I don't want you to think evil of what I'm saying if I poke a little fun at AA or professionals. Uh, I learned from AA people that serious subjects had to be treated with a certain lightness precisely because they're so serious. I'm here because Luke asked me to come here, and originally what he asked me to do was talk about historical and cultural attitudes towards alcohol, a thing he heard me doing in Ohio someplace. And I said, no, I'd sooner talk about what I call the revolution in psychotherapy, and yet at, right now I feel just a bit, bit guilty because with the bicentennial and all, this would be a very good time to talk about historical and cultural attitudes towards alcoholism. If you'll permit me, very quickly, I would like to say just a few words about our history and our attitudes towards alcohol 
and I'd like to do it as a salute to the bicentennial. Have you seen the stuff on television? This is the way it was, you know, Tyrandaroga and whatchamacallem, March to the Sea or something. Or they retreated in New York. <clears throat> well, this is the way it was. Now, I'm quoting Harold Peterson here. This is an old thing. Originally, it's, it's taken from the uh, Washington Post, the same newspaper that brought you Watergate. I've corresponded with, with Harold Peterson now, and everything is true here except the part about the USS Constitution. There's some exaggeration here, but imagine this on TV now. This is the way it was. To hear Harold Peterson describe our ancestors is to wonder how the American colonists managed to stagger their way through English rule, much less win a revolution. Peterson, chief curator of the National Park Service, is an expert on the drinking habits of our forefathers, of whom he says a happier bunch of drunks never climbed on horseback. <laughs> Indeed, those who listened to his lecture here about our alcoholic ancestors doubted that the colonists were even in shape to get astride their horses. <laughs> the audience's skepticism stemmed from its own sampling after the lecture of Chatham Artillery Punch, and the Betty Crocker recipe now for this is three gallons Catawba wine, three gallons rum, <laughs> a gallon brandy, one gallon rye whiskey, five pounds brown sugar, two quarts of cherries, juice of three dozen lemons, and a gallon of gin to make it smooth. Uh, a happier bunch never climbed into their cars. The colonists, it would seem from Peterson's lecture, were a hardier bunch than their martini bread descendants and took the likes of Chatham Artillery Punch and Wobbly Stride. For example, every day before breakfast, John Adams worked through a tankard or two of hard cider, which probably accounts for the portraits depicting our second president with his mouth puckered up and twisted to one side. Well, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a revivalist preacher in Massachusetts Bay Colony. Well, Jonathan Edwards was busting his lungs about hellfire and damnation. Most of his contemporaries were off sipping whistle belly vengeance, a brew concocted from sour beer and a lot of other perfectly disgusting items. The justices of the Supreme Court under John Marshall established a firm rule not to drink on the bench except on rainy days. <laughs> Presumably, using the same logic they later employed in Marbury versus Madison, the justices promptly decided that it must have been raining, uh, that their jurisdiction covered the whole country, and it must have been raining every day in some place. <laughs> in one of the most joyous ordinations on record, 80 guests at a priestly ceremony honoring a 1787 seminary graduate consumed 40 huge bowls of punch. John Hancock liked a good party. At a dinner at his home in 1792, Hancock signed off his 200 guests with 136 bowls of punch, 300 bottles of wine, and for those still standing, served sherry and brandy after supper. <laughs> These examples, according to Peterson, are just part of the evidence that the colonists drank on every occasion they could find, holidays, weddings, proclamation signings, funerals, any excuse they could find. And what about the revolution? After all, one questioned or reasoned, booze might have helped out at Valley Forge, but what about the rest of the war? The reference to Valley Forge, of course, is the reference to George Washington's troops either mutinying or threatening to mutiny because they weren't getting their grog ration. Now, apparently a little cup now and then didn't impair the efficiency of the Revolutionary Navy if the following story related by Peterson is to be believed. Now, this is somewhat exaggerated, Peterson says. On August 23, 1779, the USS Constitution set sail from Boston, loaded with 475 officers and men, 48,600 gallons of fresh water, 74,000 cannon shot, 11,500 pounds of black powder, and 79,400 gallons of rum. Her mission to destroy and harass English shipping. 
On October 6th, she made Jamaica, took on 826 pounds of flour and 58,300 gallons of rum. <laughs> Three weeks later, the Constitution reached the Azores, where she provisioned with 550 pounds of beef and 64,300 gallons of Portuguese wine. On November 18th, the ship set sail for England, where her crew captured and scuttled 12 English merchantmen and took aboard their rum. But the Constitution had run out of shot, and so she made her way unarmed up the Firth of Clyde for a night raid, and at the same time her landing party captured a whiskey distillery, transferred 40,000 gallons aboard, and headed for home. <laughs> On February 20th, 1780, Peterson continued, the USS Constitution arrived in Boston with no cannon, no shot, no food, no powder, no rum, no whiskey, and 48,600 gallons of stagnant water. <laughs> That's the way it was. <laughs> As some of you know, within a hundred years, things improved remarkably. Instead of the whole country being vigorously for drinking and drunkenness, a small portion of the country was against it. And by now, we come to the period uh, around seven to, uh, about 1880, somewhere in there, the beginning of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, uh, 1874, a very powerful organization. It makes... A uh, woman's lib today looked like a wet noodle. The idea was, even though women didn't have the right to vote, they could get men to go to Washington and there represent themselves as dries and to help dry up the country. And so the goal was to get a dry congressman in Washington and have him smoke out the ones there to find out whether they were really dry or not because these women worked hard to get them there. Now, nobody knows whether this is true or not. It's symbolically, it probably is. This is supposed to have occurred during the presidency of James Buchanan. And a certain senator from Pennsylvania, a notorious dry, he was so dry he was a fire hazard, had just given <laughs> one of his dry talks and pointed to another senator and said, and sir, where do you stand? And the idea was to smoke him out and find out where he was at. This is supposed to have been his colleague's reply. You've asked me how I feel about whiskey. Well, here's how I stand on the question. If when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison spirit, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, and creates misery, poverty, yes, literally takes the bread from the mouths of little children. If you mean the evil drink that topples the Christian man from the pinnacle of righteousness, gracious living, and causes him to descend to the pit of degradation, despair, shame, and helplessness, then I am certainly against it with all my heart. But if when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, the philosophic wine, the ale consumed when good fellows get together that puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips, the warm glow of contentment in their eyes, if you mean Christmas cheer, if you mean the stimulating drink that puts the spring in an old man's footsteps on a frosty morning, if you mean the drink whose sale puts untold millions of dollars into our treasury, which are used to provide tender care for our little crippled children, our blind, our deaf, or dumb are pitifully aged and infirm to build highways and hospitals and schools, then certainly I am in favor of it. This is my stand, and I will not compromise. <laughs> and that's why Will Foster is in trouble, as well as all the rest of us in our culture. Now I'd like to say something about the revolution in psychotherapy. There are other titles one could give here, peer group therapy, self-help group therapy, intentional groups, task-oriented groups, mutual self-help groups, healing communities, call it what you will. I call it a revolution. One of the best things I've heard about this whole business, by the way, lately, is a year ago, a man, a psychiatrist by the name of Dumont, was invited by the editor of the American Journal of Psychiatry to do an article 
on self-help groups. Now, Dumont apparently didn't know anything about AA, but he got acquainted with drug self-help groups. And paraphrasing, one of the things he said in his article, and this is the joke on psychiatry, Ed, if psychiatrists don't catch up with the self-help group movement, they're going to be left behind. And it was a warning. You'd better find out what's going on in the world. Now, for some years, I've had the difficult task of not being a member of AA, but somehow trying to explain it to non-members, to professional people. And they're in a particularly dense group, as some of you know. Tried to tell them that something else is happening in our culture and they'd better wake up and find out what's going on here. I try to start out by doing this by saying something about the relationship between behavior pathology, mental illness, whatever it is, and behavior pathologists, that is formerly psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. NIAAA and uh, NIMH are in pretty much agreement that about 10% of the population or 20 million people are mentally ill. There could be well, the number could be higher than this. This doesn't include criminals and delinquent. It doesn't include alcoholics and drug addicts or other walking wounded. There are other estimates of the total number of mentally ill that are more frightening. One very good Canadian study suggested that 35% of the adults were seriously incapacitated. Didn't mean they'd ever go to a mental hospital, but mental illness was seriously interfering with their functioning. There was another study in Midtown Manhattan that I always felt good about here. It was found that 80% of the residents, exclusive of Claire and Bob Jones, were had serious psychiatric troubles and I was always happy to see that because I always thought a hundred percent of the residents of Midtown Manhattan were in trouble of some kind. Now what about if one thinks about the total number of estimated mentally ill people? What about the professional behavior pathologists available to do something about this? This is really called the mental health manpower shortage and it's been, been studied for the past 15 years, the past decade. And if you've never been depressed before and you're in this business, this is a great way to become depressed because there is no evidence whatsoever that there can ever be enough professional mental health people to go around to help all of the people with mental health problems who need help. Even if one draws a projection line, doubles all of the schools of psychiatry, psychology, and social work, the decline of available mental health manpower keeps on going down. There's no adequate solution to this. Nobody has come up with some reasonable thing to do. You can already guess, though, what one solution would be for professionals to do increasingly more brief psychotherapy, more intensive psychotherapy, but that's still a one-to-one -one relationship. The great breakthrough might mean group psychotherapy, and yes, that's been going on for a number of years. Greater economy here could be used much more extensively, yet specialized training is still required. The expert is still needed with formal training, and it's these experts that are in short supply. And now to what I consider the revolution in psychotherapy, the very idea, the audacious idea that sick, emotionally disturbed people, people with behavior pathology, behavioral disorders can actually treat and help themselves. And this movement really begins with the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935. And remember, these people originally did not plan on helping themselves directly. They had to help themselves directly because they were so thoroughly rejected by the professionals of the time, by the culture of the time, by our elaborate rejection enabling system. Well, what's the outcome of this revolution? One doesn't have to read very much literature to find out that there is this miracle of AA around, at least 500,000 members in the United States alone, now an international fellowship. And repeated surveys indicate remarkable rates of recovery, even though these reports are subjective and all of that. The fact is, 
you can see collections of these people at meetings and groups and they report feeling better than they've ever felt before in their lives they indicate improved mental health and at our present level of evaluation i consider these evaluations as adequate as any that other professionals do but how can we explain this how can we account for this we desperately need to help professionals get to know this program to sanction it and to make referrals to it and so i began to study how does the typical professional how does he come to even know about aa if he comes to know about it at all what happens well usually it's an informal visit usually some kind of coincidence takes place and a brief local happening takes place and unfortunately usually the outcome is not what it should be let me try to give you what i think is a typical example I'm going to make our professional now a psychiatrist and present company excluded. I have to symbolize this in one profession that's able to handle this kind of heat, and I think that should be psychiatry. The man I have in mind is well qualified, well boarded. He's an astute observer of human nature. He's an expert on schizophrenia. He's an authority on personality structure. He's a university professor. He lectures on manic depressive syndromes, on the defense mechanisms. Accidentally at a dinner party he meets an AA member at a cocktail party and he wonders why the AA guy isn't drinking and they get talking back and forth. He's curious. He's heard about AA a little bit at least. He knows the poor track record that professionals have with al alcoholics. The outcome is the AA man agrees to take him to an open meeting. And this is what happens a few days, few nights later, a week or two later. The AA man picks up our psychiatrist friend, takes him to the meeting. The meeting doesn't start on time. It's held in a dingy little hall. And since it isn't starting on time, they're still setting up the folding chairs. Our professional makes a few observations and in his head he's doing mental statuses and he labels that one and that one and that one. He notices that they smoke too much, they drink too much coffee. But finally the chairman opens the meeting and you can tell by looking at him, he's a hypomanic. Folks, we got a great meeting for you tonight. My name is Jim and I'm an alcoholic. What's wrong with you? And everybody claps and says, give him hell, Jim. And if you're a professional, that's not a very good way to act, you know. We've got a great program tonight, folks. Wait till you hear from Tom and Jerry and Sally. And everybody claps. Uh, but first, folks, Ed is going to give the preamble. Ed, will you stand up and tell the folks what this is all about? Ed, by the way, is sitting in the front row and he's shaking. He's a small, nervous man. He's been sober for a month, maybe. His suit looks awkward. He's really a working man. His hands are shaking, and in a very dull, monotonous voice, he reads the preamble. His voice is quivering, and at times it squeaks, and finally he gets through it, and Chairman Jim leads in the clapping. Great job, Ed. Didn't he do a great job, folks? Good for you, Ed. You know, Del Sharbert, you better watch out for your job. Uh, you know, this, this doesn't impress professionals, you know. Now, finally, the meeting begins. Chairman Jim tells a few jokes on himself, tells a little about his own history, tells how happy he is to be on the program. Then he introduces Tom. And these stories now are all the same. This is the way it was. This is what happened. This is the way it is now. Tom describes how he's committed to a state hospital four times, the lies he told him, the cons, all that sort of thing. He mentions the four different labels he has. He said, I can't spell them, he said, and they don't mean too much anyway. He said, you know how those shrinks are. And then finally, he accidentally meets an AA member two years ago, gives him another label and says, you're a ginhead. That's the name he's had ever since. That's what they call him in AA is ginhead. Hello, ginhead. You know, that AA member is now a sponsor. Then Chairman Jim introduces Jerry. Jerry's been sober for four years. Jerry describes being happier than he's ever been before in his life. 
describes how he went to psychiatrist for 10 years. He said he had it all measured out at $25 an hour with uh, five mm-hmms. That was $5 for each mm-hmm. And he could buy a fifth of all granddad for that, so why the hell stay around and do that? But anyway, this long story ends with the last famous psychiatrist he worked with. Since they were both doing so well and really understood each other, they decided to go out and have a few drinks together to prove he was a social drinker. He then describes how he and the psychiatrist got drunk, take a plane to Chicago, get arrested, lose all their money, and have to take a bus back home. Everybody claps. Finally, finally sobered up because the, the elevator operator in the apartment where he lives told him the truth about himself one morning at three o'clock in the morning. Now the elevator operator has his sponsor and he's all through with those damn shrinks. Everybody claps. You know, if you want to hurt a professional, this is one of the best ways I know of doing it is to go to one of these meetings. Then the chairman introduces Sally. Sally's happy. She's been sober for three years. She tells a tragic tale of being physically ill some years ago, going to different physicians, they give her different pills. These pills really make her feel better. She feels so good, she starts flying and she doesn't even have to get off the ground. Then she gets on alcohol. Then she meets this marvelous psychologist who is really a great head shrinker. They get along so well together, they get married. He dies three years later of alcoholism. And then she hears about AA after he's dead. Now, again, if you want to hurt a professional, this is the best way to do it, uh, is to just go to AA meetings over and over again. Our psychiatrist friend still doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't know where all this humor comes from. This is a serious illness. He wants to know what's happening. As near as he can tell, it's a sort of a peculiar mixture, you know, a sort of a middle-class Salvation Army meeting, a little soup, a little soap, and a little salvation. But finally, it comes to an end, he thinks. And finally, they end the meeting with a prayer, but the people don't really leave. Now they're having cake. And now there's another meeting after the meeting, only it's over coffee. But at least now our visitor can meet some of these people that he saw up on that platform. So he goes over to Tom. He said, your story was fantastic. He said, all that help you had from professionals, and finally you got into AA, and that did it. What was it that did it? Tom says, keep it simple. <laughs> you know, you're a professional. He goes to Jerry and look, that was marvelous. And all that help you got and it didn't work, what did it for you? What was it about this program? Jerry says, 24 hours a day. <laughs> then Sally, and that's even worse. She said, yeah, I had all kinds of trouble. Well, what did it? Let go, let God. You know? <laughs> and finally asked the chairman. He said, look, I heard part of your story. How did you manage to sober up? He said, well, the steps. He said, well, what steps? He said, well, the 12 steps. Well, what are they? And the chairman says, we used to have a big sign up on the wall and somebody took the damn thing down. You know, uh, <clears throat> it's even worse if you meet somebody there from Hazleton because you ask him what did it and he pulls this medallion out of his pocket. He says, I was there five years ago. I've had this medallion. I've been sober for five years. Whenever I think about drinking, I just look at that medallion and I don't take the damn drink. He might just as well have pulled a rabbit's foot out of his pocket, you know, because professionals don't buy that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, it's even worse if you ask somebody who's in charge. You know, they'll tell you. Or you say, well, can I talk to the man who's been sober the longest? And some fellow says, look, look, Harry's a good guy, but he's going through the menopause or something. Don't bother talking to him. Bill over here has really got the program. Go talk to him and you find out there's no respect for age, there's no authority in this damned outfit, and nobody knows who's running it. Now, it's at this point we usually lose professionals. 
But if we could keep them around, they might learn something. They might learn some revolutionary ideas, and I call these the mechanics of the AA movement. One of the mechanics is whatever it is, there are 12 steps. It is a didactic teaching program. It is a guide to thinking and behavior. As some of you people say, all you have to have to join is a desire to do something about your drinking. I think you have to have one other thing. You have to be smart enough to count up to 12 in some kind of order. But the focus is on action, on taking the steps. Now, for professionals, this is a radically new idea. Most of us were educated in such a fashion that we felt that people couldn't get over problems unless they first focused on the past, focused on feelings and emotions, and became aware of all of this. And once you become aware of it, then you somehow say, aha, then you start straightening out your life. AA, unfortunately, missed all of that dynamic knowledge, threw the whole damn thing out and says, look, all you have to do is take the steps, take this action. It doesn't matter how you feel. Take these steps, and later on your feelings will change and catch up to where you're at. Another thing I think a professional could learn is something about cohesiveness. I think that professionals, professional behavior pathologists already know about that, by the way. They know about the terrible alienation that takes place in mental illness. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that alcoholics aren't alienated and with a sense of loss and isolation. But keep in mind, for professionals working in the field, we see mentally ill people and uh, no offense against recreational and occupational therapists, but the whole idea is to help people get resocialized by sewing moccasins and wallets, you know, and on some psychiatric floors with alcoholics, this is disastrous, you know. Fellow, would you like to sew another moccasin? He said, I've already done a hundred. Why don't you shift over to wallets for a while, you know, or something like that? It just doesn't quite cut it. It doesn't work. There's another kind of cohesiveness among alcoholics. And professionals who work in state hospitals know what that's like. Uh, if you're the medical director, you suddenly get an order that now in this big state hospital you have to take alcoholics, and you really don't know what to do about them. But since they're mentally ill, what you do is put a few on each one of your wards. And suddenly it's magic time. These nice, quiet wards with a 100 or so schizophrenics on them suddenly change. With a few alcoholics on those units teaching now skills to the mental patients, they're teaching them to steal butter out of the kitchen, extra food, how to get the sugar and raisins out of the kitchen to make Raisin Jack down in the tunnels. They've got it fixed for when the joint is locked up at night, who kneels down on the floor and who climbs up on his shoulders to go through the transom to stop the taxi cab that delivers the booze every hour on the hour and puts it under the pine tree, this sort of thing. they got football pools, baseball pools, and all that stuff going. That's cohesiveness. And, and later on, when these people sober up and get on the program, this kind of thing is going to be expressed in terms of meetings, formal and informal meetings, lunches. As I sometimes say, I think they all go to the toilet together, too. Uh, another thing he discovers is the absence of structured authoritarian leadership. There is, in fact, an anti-authoritarian attitude. He finds, he'd find out that new groups start up because they quarrel over the coffee. Uh, he tries to find out where the leadership comes from, and there just isn't a formal structured kind of thing. There isn't a pope, cardinals, bishops, and troops. There isn't a president, vice president. There isn't a, a master, sergeant, corporal, privates, things like that. But finally, he'd find there is a form of leadership, and this is called role model or vicariation. The leadership comes from one person being an, am an example for somebody else. Uh, to me, the best symbolism of the, uh, the attempt to play down this authoritarian attitude, there's one group that has meetings. They have a permanent sign in the back, in the front of the thing, uh, where everyone can see it. 
All chairmen will remember that after each meeting to put the folding chairs away and empty the ashtrays, you know, in case you get this big shot feeling, it'll go away real fast. Another thing one can learn by observing AA is that there is an inspirational attitude. There's the communication of hope. Regardless of how tragic and suffering one may be, there's someone else making the program with greater problems than I ever had, and if he can do it, I can. Thus, one of the old definitions that you'll find in some of the literature on group psychotherapy describes AA as a didactic inspirational group program. Didactic meaning teaching, inspirational meaning the communication of hope, and group simply meaning group. And up until a few years ago, that was about all those of us who were not in the program knew about it. Then along came a man by the name of Oho Bart Maurer. Maurer is a psychologist. He's a rat psychologist. He spent half his life running rats. The other spent half his life studying psychoanalysis. By the way, Maurer, as early as 1939, did some good experimental work. He, uh, the good operational definition of anxiety, a conditioned form of the pain response. The anticipation of pain triggers off anxiety. He could do these experiments. He could create analogs of neurosis and animal stuff like this. But like many people, one of the things he was interested in was psychoanalysis. Please be careful now of what I'm going to say. I must grossly oversimplify this. The old typology, remember, of mental structure and, and the philosophy even of, of mental illness came from these very early and primitive ideas of id, ego, and superego. Remember, id impulses are these strong, driving, instinctual needs. I want what I want when I want it. I want to sleep with my mother, kill my father. I, I want all my senses gratified. And somehow in terms of this internal apparatus, there's something else that comes in there that's imposed from the outside world called superego. And at first it comes from parents and parent surrogates. Stop picking your nose, stop playing with yourself, all of that kind of stuff. Wash your ears again. Pretty soon, even when your mother's downtown, you go behind the door picking your nose, a little voice inside says, stop picking your nose, and that's superego. And what has to regulate this whole thing? Well, something called the executive part of the personality, the ego. The idea is, is when people go crazy, experience feelings of anxiety, inferiority feelings, all of this sort of thing, what's coming out in terms of the old theory was repressed it impulses. The idea was that society is too hard on people. It socializes them too, too rigorously. And these impulses have been repressed. The thing is to tease these impulses out, and that helps one to feel better. Mauer wondered about this, as did other people. They wondered, as a matter of fact, if this whole uh, analysis perhaps was not asked backwards. Maybe the people, maybe all of us experience anxiety and pain and guilt feelings not because we've repressed our id impulses, but because we've repressed superego impulses or conscience. Maybe we feel uncomfortable because we have actually violated standards that we should not violate. So Mauer starts looking around, and outside of religion, he wondered, is there any other outfit that focuses on personal responsibility in cleaning house? And so he accidentally stumbles on AA. And these are some observations he made. I have to paraphrase. The first of all, he looked at it. He says, this is a different kind of group. This is not group therapy as we understood it before. The old expert-patient, doctor-patient relationship is gone. These people... <laughs> 
relate because they are peers. They are equal to each other. Next, he asks the question, where does this equality come from? He says it comes because these people share a common chronic problem that won't go away, a chronic problem for which science has no answer, a problem for which no apparent solution is possible that one must acknowledge personal responsibility. He goes on to say further that when people get together like this as peers who share a common chronic problem that won't go away, that what emerges out of this is something called honest self-revelation. This is extremely important. At least it means that with respect to the common chronic problem, people have to tell the truth, that self-deception is extremely difficult, that self-exploration takes place, that insightful behavior takes place, and that furthermore, when honest self-revelation takes place, you find the ideal conditions of facilitative counseling, empathic understanding take place, yes, confrontation and leveling also take place, but this is all of the the root metaphors of good interpersonal relationships in psychotherapy. Mauer says further that when people get together as peers, share a common chronic problem that won't go away, and tend to practice honest self-revelation, that the next thing that happens is that their value system changes, that a new value system emerges. Here people must face up to problems for which there are no easy answers. The alcoholic must change his life on some level, thoughts, feelings, or his behavior. He has to develop some kind of a value system. I sometimes suggest that maybe the best definitions of counseling and psychotherapy and all that sort of thing, perhaps all we try to do is to help people face up to some of the things that they have to face up to. And here this person is now in this peer group. He's got to face up to some things. He's got to change some things. He's got to accept other things. And he has to have the wisdom to know the difference. You could make a prayer out of that, by the way, if you wanted to. In, in, in the course of going through this now, in the course of going through this, emerges something that Maurer calls mental health. Call it peace of mind, if you will, or tranquility, but it means some kind of mental health. Now, the group continues on functioning in this fashion. By the way, these groups can call in experts if they will. They can call in MDs, clergy, psychologists, social worker. They can call in electricians or plumbers if they want to. But the lay leadership remains. The group remains autonomous. Now, Maurer got excited about this, so he put a graduate student to work. Are there any other self-help groups around like this? Is there any other outfits that seem to combine these same factors of peer groups getting together, sharing common chronic problems, practicing honest self-revelation, changing their value systems, and in groups where lay leadership emerges? And he counted then something like over 200 different self-help groups, and you've all heard of AA, Al-Anon, Alateens. You may not have heard of Recovery Incorporated, started by a psychiatrist many years ago for mental patients, or TOPS, Take Off Pounds, Sanely or Successfully, Synanon, of course, Dietrich, the man out of AA who started Synanon, and then Daytop Village, then Narcotics Anonymous, Neurotics Anonymous, which changed their name to Emotions Anonymous, the same 12 steps as AA, except they changed that first step came to realize we were powerless over our emotions that our lives had become unmanageable. Gamblers Anonymous, Smokers Anonymous, Suicides Anonymous, Families Anonymous, which is like Al-Anon, but it's for drug people, Stutterers Anonymous, Scrupulous People Anonymous, Schizophrenics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, Colostomies Anonymous, and so on, Psycho-Cybernetics Groups, Yoke Fellows, Seven Steppers, 
better health groups. Uh, the Lalek League for nursing mothers. Physicians know about that, I think. Mothers of retarded children. You've heard of parents without partners. By the way, I'm not sanctioning these. I'm just saying they exist. Maurer has recently started a new group called Integrity Therapy, where he combines a number of people with a number of problems and focuses on being honest and responsible and caring about other people. Uh, you've heard, I'm sure, it started in California first called Mothers Anonymous, and that's a confusing title. They changed it to Parents Anonymous, the Battered Child Syndrome, and you'll hear ads for this anonymous organization on TV and radio, people who've had this problem encouraging other people to call up and do something about their problems. Recently, Harvard social worker, psychiatrist, the Widow to Widow program. As many of you know, women live longer than men. They go through the whole process of grief here. And, and one of the things to do is to see a psychiatrist, but something else to do is to get help from another widow who's gone through the same thing, these terrible experiences. The children don't come to visit after the funeral. The neighbors forget about including you in the bowling league and stuff like that. And the funeral director does rip you off. Another widow can help that woman as well as anybody else. Howard Kleinbell speaks of grief groups, the same thing. Something like two million people in our culture die a year. Another eight or nine hundred thousand get divorced. Others lose jobs or have to change geographic location or experiences different kind of losses and griefs. Who helps people work through these problems? It looks like people can help themselves who have experienced grief work through problems like this. Anyway, this goes on and on and on. There are other groups. Another man, a clergyman by the name of John Drakeford also studied this. He wrote a book, Farewell to the Lonely crowd. This was his answer to Reisman, a sociologist at Harvard's book of two decades ago called The Lonely Crowd. The idea that people live closer and closer together and yet become more isolated from each other. John Drakeford said the self-help group movement is the answer to the lonely crowd. And he identified certain common characteristics that could be found in many self-help groups. He said something happens here. They change from isolation to socialization. These groups go from irresponsibility to responsibility. Now, it's difficult to illustrate this sort of professionally, but in AA, the example I think of, and many groups don't like this, but there are judges that literally sentence drunken drivers to go to AA. You know, you can have a choice, freely do what you want to. You either go to the slammer for five years or you go to two AA meetings a week for two years. And judge, I've made my mind up, I'll go to that AA thing. The guy I'm thinking about, the example I use, is a terribly bitter man, slightly paranoid. He's been picked up for drunken driving three times, can't escape any longer. To avoid the slammer, he agrees to go to AA, but what he's really got in his mind is suicide. This is all he thinks about. He's going to teach that wife of his once and for all. She can't mess around in his life. His only problem is where to do it. And in fantasy, there's really two options. One is over the laundry tubs, but he's got to hang himself. He's got to make sure that he does it at the right time. So she comes down the next morning to do the laundry, looks up and says, Oh, my God, John, what did I do that caused you to do that? Then he looks down at her and shakes his finger at her. Uh, the trouble is that she doesn't do the laundry regularly. And the other plan is plan B is out in the garage. He's going to carbon monoxide the car, but he's got to buy all this equipment and wire it up. And he can't drive any longer. He's lost his driver's license. But she drives, and it's hard to predict when she's going to go out of the house. So he has to do something to make sure he does it at a time that she has to go out the next morning, get in the car, opens the driver's side. He falls out. She looks down and says, Oh, my God, John, what did I do that make you did that? Then he looks up and shakes his finger at it. This is what he's going to do. He doesn't care about that damned AA outfit. He's got to go now to stay out of jail. He shows up at the meeting, and a bunch of ugly guys 
look, we're sick and tired of you guys that Judge sends down here. We want people who want to go to this group. Now, look, we're, we can't keep track of you. We can't do that. The only thing we'll do, look, I'll teach you to make the coffee. That's the only way we can tell you're here. I'll tell you how to do it once, no more, and you damn well better do it right. Now, look, here's the coffee pot over here. This is the kind of coffee we use. Never change brands. The last guy that did that, nobody's ever heard from him. I think he's in the river. You fill it up with cold water to here. Never wash it out with soap and water. Fill it up with cold water to here. Let it cook for 20 minutes. Wait till the red light goes on and wait another 10 minutes. Then call me. I'll come over and taste it and see if it's fit to drink. So this guy is making the coffee. He's finally making his minds up. What he'll do is he'll do it over the laundry tubs. He'll get everything dirty in the house so she has to do the damn laundry. And he won't have to do this anymore. Finally, he calls a guy over, and the guy comes over, tastes the coffee, and says, Well, it's not good coffee, but it's not bad coffee. And they drink it. Well, he's still thinking about suicide and all that. Has to come back the next Thursday night, making coffee again. He's thinking about suicide about 5,000 times a day. All I can tell you is that six months have gone by, he goes to these meetings. That's all he does is make coffee. He's a good coffee maker. He doesn't know what this is all about. He doesn't know anything about the steps. He's staying sober to stay out of jail. He's going to meetings. He only thinks about killing himself about three or four times a day now. Guess what just happened? The judge just sent another guy down to this group. Guess who meets him at the front door? Look, we're sick and tired of you guys. The judge sends down here. I'll tell you how to make the coffee once. And that's all. Now, you may not recognize it, but this is socialization. This is being responsible. All self-help groups have high standards. It may not seem like it to you, but the groups have high standards. If you're in Gamblers Anonymous, we don't care what church you belong to. You don't, you don't play bingo. You don't sell uh, tickets to anything. That's just the beginning of getting on Western Airlines and going to Las Vegas. That's all there is to it. You don't do that. All self-help groups have slogans and epigrams or pithy sayings that are meaningful to them, that are significance if one is in that program. All self-help groups have lay leadership. Another thing Drakeford comments on is that all self-help groups have something called confession. I don't like that word. Uh, and he means more than just the fourth and fifth step. What he means, I believe, is that all self-help groups have relationships where members of the group can reveal negative aspects about themselves. By the way, Mauer has pointed this out. One of the tragedies of homes, churches, and schools, the significant groups in our culture, is that frequently there we can't reveal our real selves. Uh, if you notice you have relatives and friends over, that's why we talk about the weather all the time because we can't get too personal. And that always reminds me of Christmas cards, you know. You know the long ones, the autobiographies at Christmas time once a year you get this Christmas card. Just wanted to let you know what's going on at the Anderson House. Uh, oldest son was accepted as Harvard. We really didn't expect that large a scholarship and Marge got a new outfit and we got a chance to take a vacation in the Caribbean. And Youngest daughter just ended kindergarten. They tell us her IQ is 195. It went right off the top. See, you never get Christmas cards from people, you know. The oldest son is in jail. 15-year-old girl is pregnant. And she might have VD, too, you know. You just don't get those kind. And it's part of our culture. And so you go to an AA meeting, and there's a happy guy saying, Look, I've been in AA for three years. 27 and a half days and I'm happier than I've ever been before in my life and I've got a $200 suit on but what I always have to remember is that three years ago 27 days and I was picked up on Wabasha and McCubbin and St. Paul for exposing myself he says 
I didn't know that. I didn't even know what town I was in. He can say that in front of a group of people. Now, you can't do that all over. I think that's what I'm saying. All, all, all self-help groups have something else called activity or acting as if. Another word for this is positive thinking. A long time ago when Norman Vincent Peale, now God bless him, but some of you remember the power of positive thinking. And I think every roofing and siding salesman and used car salesman and encyclopedia salesman got a hold of that and tried it on me. I used to vomit every time I heard the word positive thinking. But there's tremendous power in positive thinking. It's a power that I think we professionals have lost the meaning of. It means that one can literally change negative thoughts to positive thoughts. If you keep thinking about your mother-in-law and what a skunk she is and you have a thousand thoughts like that, what AA has taught us is you can deliberately stop thinking about that. As a matter of fact, once she may have done something good for you. And that's right, once she came for the weekend and only stayed for the weekend and went home again, thank God. At least you can think about that. That literally one can start thinking about that there is a God, there is a power in the universe that has some control and orderliness. That one can give up being general manager of the universe. I think this is extremely important. Now. Another thing, today there could be more people going to self-help groups than are going to professionals. There's no proof of this, but if one begins to check into some of these estimates, it's quite possible if you add up the total membership of certain self-help groups. This, I think, is a tremendous revolution. I think that AA really started it in a practical fashion for us, and I think that the Alcoholics Anonymous movement is the best example for it. I think that... AA contains and embodies some of the basic, basic principles of mental health. By the way, it embarrasses me because I know there are professionals here, but mental health, you know, is, is just terrible. You know, if you think disease is hard to define, you know, the disease of alcoholism, you need to try defining health, you know. You know, negatively, it's the absence of disease. I know there are new studies out trying to really identify good blood pressure and all that other kind of stuff. But mental health is a real difficult one. I think the meeting was now many years ago at Cornell. Got a bunch of professionals together. They were going to finally define mental health and get to it. They spent a week at Cornell. The conclusion they came to at the end of the week was mental health is one of the best things there are going around and everybody ought to get as much as he can of it, but they didn't know what it was. And that's partly because there are real problems of definition because one gets into values here and because we lack agreement on values. Maurer says that we can define mental health and I think AA says that we can define mental health, that we can achieve it as a matter of fact and people have been doing it and will continue to do it before, during and after the existence of professionals. To be mentally healthy means to try to be honest, to fight self-deception. To be mentally healthy means to be responsible, to keep one's words, to try not to break contracts, to try not to project responsibility off onto other people when we should be responsible ourselves. Responsibility means to be involved with others, to be caring, to share with others. And I'm suggesting that AA is really the organization that taught us this. I think that AA has taught us that we can help each other even when we can't help ourselves, or even when we can't see ourselves or have a great deal of insight into ourselves. I would suggest that AA has taught us that the poor are still the ones that help the poor. Now, there's still much to learn about this revolutionary movement, and yet I still call it the hope of the world, the greatest single hope that man has. It might be a way to crack through this the soft underbelly of this monster of mental and emotional and behavioral illness, and perhaps this is the... I don't know, another way of expressing this 
love one's neighbor. Perhaps this is the answer. Perhaps the best way to help ourselves is to help each other. Now, this may be like reinventing the wheel, but for me, I think that AA taught me that this was the best wheel we could possibly reinvent. Thank you very much. I'm even on time.